Peace. Welcome to episode four of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. So episode four actually is part two or the continuation of episode three. So if you're coming over from episode three, welcome. We're going to get right on back into the story. But if uh, you're hopping in on episode four, you haven't listened to episode three yet. You might want to stop here and go back and listen to episode three first. Either way, you're in for a good ride talking through um, public education policy and how you can really design systems to influence outcomes. Talking about, but so to that end, though, so you come out now with, you know, going through your, your formative years and then you go through and you level up to UC Berkeley and when you go through it twice, they give you two levels of being able to think uh, and form your conclusions. So now you have a voice. It's an educated and informed voice. You know, you can go into these nebulous situations, these complex situations, identify root causes, and then come up with solutions to really complicated uh, issues. And now you're you're off and you're given your your first assignment um, as an administrator. And we've kind of skipped over. There's a lot of, I think, education that happened, me knowing some more of your story. There's a lot of education that happened for you as well as being, you know, a frontline teacher. But, so, but we're going to skip to you now being a site administrator. Like you're someone that needs to solve problems and the, the, the things that you put in place actually impacts all of the other teachers and faculty and all of the students. Um, what was that like when you, when you got your first principalship? I mean, when you were really, day one, you, you signed your contract, you now have the proverbial keys to the school. What was that like for you? What okay, you well, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna have to give uh, some background around the principalship because the school site that I worked for, I was the assistant principal for two years before becoming the principal. So I was able to to put some things in place um, before I became the principal to try to shift some things. So uh, when I was actually hired to be the AP uh, at this particular school, um, the the school was facing some significant challenges. Uh, we were the highest uh, referring school in the entire school district. Uh, we also had the highest rate of suspension in the entire school district. And now I became the assistant principal and I sat over what is termed pupil services. Pupil services would be, I was in charge of discipline at the school site. Uh, that involved counseling, uh, student advising, suspensions. Um, if there was detention involved, uh, Kids that showed up, uh, high absenteeism, referrals. I, I I sat over all of that, and we had a was it a significant disproportionality of African American students showing up in all of the data that we considered negative, absenteeism, referrals, suspensions, and so I was in charge of these particular things in terms of procedures, protocols, uh, how we thought about it uh, at the school site, et cetera. And so being new to it, uh, I had to learn what was happening 
because once again, now I'm, I'm trying to analyze why these things are occurring. Um, and so as I'm in the middle of trying to figure this thing out and I get hit with uh, the Department of Justice is coming to interview me because they want to know why black kids are significantly disproportionate uh, in the negative outcomes for suspension and referrals. And when uh, that attorney came and interviewed me for a little bit over an hour, asking me some really tough questions. Now, the, keep in mind, now, I'm a brand new administrator and I'm being asked these questions. And so my lens is I'm still trying to learn what's happening here, but I have the lens of I taught for 21 years in Oakland public schools and I saw what was happening to black and brown kids, Pacific right. Islanders over in Oakland public schools. And so now I'm faced with the challenge. I got a problem solved. And once again, there isn't anybody that I can call. Like I have to figure this thing out. And so like most things I, I kicked into motion, I had to collect data, I had to collect information. Um, so uh, bouncing into classrooms and seeing what was going on, talking to teachers, uh, even doing data collection, uh, we have the system that, that generated like referrals and, and suspensions where I can, I can download it as an Excel, Excel spreadsheet. And then I'd have to put it in different graphical forms. So that, uh, thinking about, I want the biggest bang when I go to a teacher a faculty meeting and I want to show the teachers this data, I need the teachers to have a response to this data because I need the teachers to begin to engage in conversations, to move things around to shape things, to, to question their mindsets, decision-making, et cetera. And so I, I literally wrestled with that for two years, trying to figure out how am I going to solve this problem? Because I have the department of justice talking to me and the amazing individuals that I work with at my school site and the, uh, uh, I, I'm trying, I'm purposely not saying the name of the school. Um, I have some amazing people that work down in yeah. student support. And those individuals were part of the data collection, the brainstorming, the thinking um, to come up with ways to try to solve these problems. And the teachers were so open and receptive and were willing to engage in looking at the data to assess some things. So we were able to then begin to say, well, this is what we believe the problem is. So then how do we fix that if we believe this is what the problem is? So now I've become the principal. And now when I've become the principal and we, I think we've identified the problem. I had come up with a solution towards the end of my last year as assistant principal. This is thing called, I created this thing called push-in services and push-in services is the name itself comes from my background in special education, whereas a special education teacher, you got pull out and push in pull out is when you take the kid, the kid that has an IEP, you remove them from the general ed classroom. You bring them into a, a, a separate classroom setting and you work on specific skills. That's pull out, push in. Instead of pulling the kid out of the general ed setting, I send myself into the general ed setting and work with the kid in the classroom as they continue to engage in the core content work. So um, I okay. came up with this idea push-in services to address the issue and push-in services at its core. Uh, what we're talking about is we identified that there's trauma at the school site. And uh, the fact that African-American students were, were showing up disproportionately and suspensions, referrals, absenteeism, et cetera, was directly related to trauma and identifying that teachers didn't have the skill set to address trauma in a, 
content setting within the classroom. And so uh, we ended up coming up with this, uh, a, this development or training for teachers, professional development for teachers, uh, where they learn to de-escalate. And then I put in, changed the structure. I restructured how people services. Now that I'm the principal, I restructured how people services. Those resources were allocated. They weren't allocated to support kids being pulled out. They were allocated to support kids and teachers in the classroom. So we were sending, pushing people in student support into the classrooms to keep the kids um, supported and engaged uh, with learning. That and, and, and why was it so important that, that, the push-in happened? Great question. All right. So the reason push-in happened or the reason push-in needed to happen is the learning environment. Whenever we talk about uh, any school site, it's the learning environment. When kids and teachers walk onto the campus, how are students supported um, to learn and then how are teachers supported to produce a learning environment that is beneficial to them? Uh, because teachers are in this game for uh different reasons, but they're in to teach kids and be successful because they want kids to learn. The learning environment that we had was not a learning environment. It was very chaotic. And so uh, very little instruction was happening inside the classroom, very little instruction or uh, focus on instruction and getting to classes was occurring in the hallways. And we had this detention center where detention center became a place to hang out. Uh, people would find out who got a referral. And so then like if, the, if their friend was in detention center, then they would do something in the classroom to get sent out so they can be hanging out with their friend in the detention center. So the sum total of all of this was very little education was happening. Um, students were being frustrated or getting frustrated. Teachers were getting frustrated because in order for you to get into the detention center, you have to get into a conflict with the teacher. And so just the overall frustration was maddening. As a school site, we were, we were a smaller school site. Right. And so we had a total of 23 content teachers. The year I was hired, uh, 14 out of 23 new teachers were hired. Then uh, at the end of my first year, 11 out of 23 new teachers were hired. At the end of my second year, we had nine out of 23 new teachers were hired. And then I became the principal. All right. And so now I'm saying that like what we were doing as far as a, a, an education system was not sustainable for anybody. It wasn't good for students. It wasn't good for teachers. It wasn't good for parents. And the reason wasn't good um, for students. Students were coming there to learn. Learning wasn't happening for parents. They have hopes and dreams for their children. And they feel that schools are a stepping stone for those hopes and dreams, wherever the kids, if they want the kids to be doctors, lawyers, whatever the case may be school became that place where we were going to help them reach these, these life goals. And for teachers who were coming into this uh, game of education, they were coming in to be transformative, to help people learn, to help kids reach those hopes and green, dreams, to become learners, et cetera. Everybody had their issues not being, everybody had their goals, hopes, and dreams not addressed by the environment. Students were losing, parents were losing, and teachers were losing. We had to change what was happening. Yeah, I think that's I think that's profound. I think it was it's deep one that this one identifying a root cause root cause was able to address all these issues for all of these different stakeholders. And what I find even more or it's, it's almost like confirmation bias. because um, I've never heard you explain 
the holistic thinking of your system this way is one of the things I really emphasize at work when I'm leading my team is, you know, we need to identify the root cause. Like the, the data is democratic. Like no one gets to just come in and say, well, here's the solution before we start looking at it from every which way, really using the full team's mm-hmm. collective genius to find out like what the actual problem is that we're solving for. And then once we understand the problem, come up with a solution for it. But I do believe like almost as a religious practice in terms of like leadership, your job is to help lead the team to identify the root cause. And then once you identify it, then it becomes a responsibility to focus your resources and your solutions Correct. to addressing just that. And uh, I think that's pretty impressive. Well, I'll tell mentioned. you, man, that was a, all the, t- there's some teachers who are still at the school site that have been there the seven years that I've been at the school site. And they'll tell you, man, this was, this was not easy, but everybody was on board and trying to solve the problem. And so when we were able to solve the problem, uh, not solve, come up with a particular solution that we thought would solve the problem. We didn't know if it was going to work. Um, so we implement our, I created the push in not only the training around it, but then the infrastructure, uh, the procedures for implementing it, et cetera. Um, and it was successful. Like it was wildly successful. Um, it was more successful than I even, if I even thought something was going to be successful, it was being it, the success was beyond my imagination. Um, it, it did transform the school and we had the data to show that it transformed the school. So normally uh, you look at school situations, like people try to manipulate data. I'm not a manipulator of data. I need the, I need the situation. I need the data to reflect what is happening, not me manipulating the data. So that it sounds good. looks good. So we saw a drastic decrease in referrals and uh, suspensions. To give you an idea, just on referrals alone, um, the last year I was assistant principal, we had over 2,100 referrals written on a school of 500 kids. Uh, My first year as principal implementing the push-in system, we had reduced the referrals from 2,100 down to 695. And then in the second year, we dropped it to 383. And then the third year, we had 127. Um, Suspensions went from 118 (laughs) down to 85 to 53. And then I'll say the lowest we ended up having, uh, was it 21 suspensions? So you start thinking about um, like the, the dramatic decrease, then you should see some things if, yeah. if, if we're not fudging the data, then what has happened is we've created a different environment. We created a different culture. And if that is the case, then we should see some improved test scores. And the test scores reflected what we had done around the referral and the suspension data. So it let me know that we were headed in the right direction. Thinking about going back to, so now I'm going to bring back up the UC Berkeley uh, with the research the data, the analysis, Mm -hmm. like this is what, how I think and what drives me um, as a leader thinking about these things. And so when I think of things like uh, in public education, they they try to come up with solutions. Many of these things are like boutique solutions. That's like something that's catchy, uh, something called innovative, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't look at things that way. And and it comes from uh, UC Berkeley. I have this thing where uh, I do a, whole school or systems approach to things because 
the system is producing the data. So what in the system needs to change? A boutique idea for a small subset of people is not going to change the system. So so I'm I'm hardwired a little a little different. And because of that, we were able to um, make some significant changes around the pushing services that I created. But there's a problem to this whole system thinking too, is that it takes more time. So when problems are presented, there's not going to be immediate answer. It took me two years to come up with push-in services. Right. Um, so right. <clears throat> there's some things happening, but I tell you what, the um, I, I work with some amazing teachers. I often say uh, that I am the luckiest administrator in, in the entire state of California because I work with these amazing individuals uh, at my school site who are willing to wrestle with tough situations. Yep. They will deal with implicit bias, etc. I've been able to create uh, a, an environment similar to UC Berkeley, where people can actually engage in collecting data and doing research and exploring things. Um, so just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it's, I think, I think that's, I think it's really vital. And there's, I've, you know, going back before I had made a comment about how, you know, marketing and education are at the bookends, you know, what I do in my day job, my job is to solve, pro identi identify the problem, figure out what the root driver, root cause is of X, and then come up with solutions and deploy resources to then solve for that so that the business grows. And so where yours is test results, mine is business results, but it's nonetheless very similar processes. And I think a lot of times people will look at, you know, in business, they'll look at another business or another brand and see what it is that they did. And then they just want to copy that on the surface. It was like, no, you need to understand like why they did it and understand like what problem were they trying to solve? And on the other end, uh, my, <laughs> my, my team, they, they can uh, attest to this if you were ever to talk to them is I always ridicule anyone ridicule anyone when they see a marketing campaign and the first thing they say is that's stupid or that's dumb. I mean, case in point, that it's not even a marketing campaign. It's uh, when Facebook bought Instagram, you know, when they acquired Instagram for a billion dollars, Instagram, I want to say, I forget the exact number. I want to say something like 12 employees, 15 employees. They had zero revenue. They had no path to revenue. They hadn't really figured out how they were going to monetize Instagram. They just had built a much better picture sharing app. And Facebook bought it. And it was like, oh, Facebook's dumb. I'm like, all right, well, you need to start from a place that Facebook is not dumb. Just even if they are dumb, just assume they're not dumb. Now, explore, like, what was the root thing that they were trying to solve for? Like that level of diligence and trying to understand what's the root driver then leads you to these really breakthrough insights. And once you then have these breakthrough insights, that's when you're supposed to be innovative. It's not innovative just to imitate what someone else does. And we've seen, yeah, what we've seen in hindsight to close the loop on a Facebook thing, Facebook, if you put it in context, they were about to go public. And Instagram hit hockey stick adoption. At that point, Facebook did not have video sharing. They um, the most engaging piece of content they had that you can share <laughs> was a photo. Instagram had come up with a better, like an exponentially better photo sharing app. And if you left Instagram out there alone, Instagram was going to beat Facebook. And so Facebook was like, let me 
buy this thing because people were assuming Facebook's IPO was going to be at $100 billion. And Facebook goes and they buy Instagram for a billion. People think that that's dumb. Facebook IPOs, oh, I forget the number because the stock market is so crazy right now, but the last time I checked within the past month before the craziness of the stock market that's happened in this last four weeks, Facebook was like $600 billion or something like that. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. six X what they could have been. So that billion dollar purchase was very cheap. And so that's another way of looking at it coming from the negative. I always try and push people to, to assume Absolute, that people are not dumb. If they're not dumb, then try to understand like what's going on behind their thinking and their decision-making because then that'll get you to the root cause. Then the root cause, once you understand that, that's when you start to imply innovation and ingenuity around a solution. So kudos to you though, to be being able to do this type of innovation within public education. So let me tell you something, man. That's what I'm trying to tell you, man. I, I work with some amazing people and, and teachers often, you know, there's a deficit mindset around teachers and teachers are often, uh, undermined, um, belittled, ridiculed uh, for incompetence, et cetera. Like, let me tell you, man, you can't find anybody that's working harder than teachers in any any field, any career. And I think people are finding out how difficult it is to teach uh, with this new COVID-19 isolation. <laughs> I think there's a newfound appreciation for teachers. But I want to go yeah. back to just touch on that thing around the multiculturalism. I told you in the collaboration, like, and we need to co-construct some things. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I often share is that the system produces these numbers. So when you sum up at my school site, the system, when you start talking about the referrals, the suspensions, the system is producing it. But more times than not, when people say the system, they think the system is some boogeyman outside. Look, the suspension data that was off the charts my first two years, I was the person suspending kids. Like it wasn't anybody else. It wasn't some boogeyman outside that was right. literally me in charge of people services making this happen. So identifying that the system is literally the collective thoughts and beliefs of the adults in the building as they interpret rules, policies, and procedures to apply to kids in their classrooms. Mm. So when you start looking at the high number mm. of referrals and suspensions, et cetera, um, the system is us. So then there's a way that we as adults our values, yep. beliefs, and thinking about the procedures, policies, and practices at the school and how we're interpreting that is producing this. And so then how do you engage people, not in the conversation of like, you need to stop this. We need to explore our own implicit biases. And so we were able to create a book club uh, on the campus. Um, there were some amazing people who, who wanted to take the lead on this. And then my job was to supply the books. So the first book club, uh, we, we courageous conversations about race. Um, that was the first book. So I chose that book and that was the initial learning for the year where we explored that book, but we are now unpacking as adults who are making decisions, who are the system. We were unpacking that. And at the end of that first year, I let the mm -hmm. teachers choose the next book. And so over the last five years, um, the first book was courageous conversations about race. Uh, then we followed up for uh, white people who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. We look at uh, multiplication is for white people. Uh, we looked at um, push out the criminalization of uh, black girls. Uh, 
And the book that we're studying this year is uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive. These texts are what adults are engaging in to reflect upon their own implicit biases and how they're playing out in the decisions that they make at the school, how they interpret behavior. And then from that, we're developing policies and practices based upon those things. So from these book clubs, like student rights, we developed this thing called student rights, where every student is allowed to do this. And student rights is designed to foster a positive relationship between students and teachers, especially for kids who have uh, trauma issues. Predictability is important. So student rights were developed. We have this thing called cogent groups, uh, where students give feedback to adults around instruction, policies, et cetera. So these readings aren't just for exercise purposes. We're reflecting on our, our own biases and privileges and experiences. And then how is that playing out at the school site? And then what do we need to shift in terms of our policies and procedures so that we can get different outcomes? That, to me, is what education is all about. And it goes back to that thing that I mentioned earlier, where we have, we have now classrooms consisting of uh, a variety of kids that have language um, differences, that have educational differences, that might have learning differences in terms of whether they have an IEP or not. So the skill set of teacher has to increase. Well, then how do you engage a teacher in that? Not from a deficit mindset, but from an asset lens. Right. And that's what the professional learning right. community I work with. Right. They are doing that. And man, I'm just trying to tell you, I'm fortunate because now we can tackle any issue. It doesn't make a difference. We can hold a conversation and try to analyze the data because we're tracking and trending in the right direction around how we see stuff so that we can change that to benefit kids. Yeah. That's awesome. Kudos, kudos to you and your whole, uh, professional environment that you have over at your school and these teachers and other administrators, faculty that have bought in to be able to do this. Cause anyone who's listening, if you, if it hasn't become abundantly apparent, um, it seems like a really straight line to connect that, you know, this is, this is the son of sharecroppers who was raised, you know, single parent <laughs> had to wear tough skins as he made his way through school, you know, had to deal with, you know, being tracked and being tracked in a way that wasn't even consistent with his academic performance or his intellectual aptitude. He was just tracked regardless. And now he's in the situation to be able to create an educational environment that is conducive to everyone learning. So other kids who come up who are similar to him are set up for success and kids who are not like him are also set up for success. It's, it's created this, this space. And I can hear the passion um, that comes from you being able to do this work. And really quickly, I would love if you could be able to tell people some of the accolades that you and your uh, professional community have been able to produce. Based wow. On the work some of the accolades. Yeah, yeah. So um, Let's rattle a couple KQED off. did a special on my school site around push-in services and the outcomes that um, we produced. Um, it's called a, a, a deeper look at a whole school approach to behavior. Uh, it's a it's a mind mind shift podcast by KQED um, that went out all over. So I was able I've been talking to people from all over the place around this as far as Ireland. Um, 
we we were in, we partner now with NEA, the National Education Association. We are a community school, uh, and we do a variety of things differently. Like I have over different, I have over fifty different agencies that partner with my school site during the during the school day to address the needs. Uh, we've been invited out to so my community school coordinator and I went out to uh, Washington D.C. testified to. Uh, congressional members around the community school work to try to increase the funding for community schooling. Uh, been invited um, by the NEA to do presentations around how to how leadership should view community schooling and, and deal with relationships around the community school coordinator to foster distributed leadership and outcomes. Um, I've been, uh, I've done presentations uh, to the California legislative PTA, around the whole school approach um, to social emotional learning presented at the California uh, superintendent and board association down in San Diego around my community schooling model uh, as a model that uh, benefits other individuals around uh, focus on teaching and learning uh, the leadership policy Institute. Uh, I believe that's Linda Darling Hammond's uh, Institute. They came and they, they uh, did some interviews of a teacher and myself, uh, community school coordinator around how we do community schooling. And they just released uh, an article highlighting uh, one of my teachers at the school site. Uh, it's in American uh, Federation of Teachers. Uh, there's an article on the community schooling. Uh, I've been invited by the state superintendent, Tony Thurman, my community school coordinator and I were invited to give him uh, input uh, on uh, ways to do fund community schooling throughout the state of California, uh, considering that the governor's allocated $300 million for community schooling. Uh, what should that look like? What should the training be? Um, what should be in the policy to make sure that things move forward that would be beneficial um, for the various districts to decide to take on this particular money. So these are some of the, the, the highlights that have, that have occurred. Uh, I've been contacted by, um, was it the new teacher center? Uh, they want to partner with me uh, to get out this thing, uh, get out the idea that I have around whole school, social emotional learning needs to be whole school, not just a particular curriculum. So these are some things that are happening that are beneficial. Got some, mm -hmm. I got some uh, uh, some things in the fire. I got some stuff cooking in the oven um, based upon these things. Yeah. <laughs> Cook it up, chef. Yo, you are clearly, clearly doing big work. You you and your whole your whole crew. I right. know it definitely, you know, it's not you by yourself, um, but you you are leading the ship, which is, uh, you know, kudos as well. Because these are, I mean, the whole point of bootstraps is not, it's, it's telling the stories of, black men and, and the journeys that they've had to travel. And oftentimes yeah. they have to travel farther um, than other people, but they're still, they still took that journey and they've successfully made it there. And they're leading. Well, you so know, really inspiring. Man, it's good to hear that too, because you know, I'm telling you, man, sometimes the accolades, but I will say this, this Corona, like I'm mad at this Corona for multiple reasons, but uh, the Corona um, I, so with KQED and MindShift, um, I've stayed in contact with them. Uh, we've um, done some work together, not just around the push-in services, but um, there's the lunch thing, how we describe, how we do lunch for our students at the school site. I was supposed to present with them at the South by Southwest 
uh, in Austin and that got canceled. Um, and that was, that was disappointing because, uh, I I was looking forward to holding that bigger conversation on on a bigger platform, holding that conversation around how I feel schools should move. Um, not only from the leadership perspective, but the teachers inside the building. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward at some point to, uh, revisiting, holding that conversation. That's, that's what's up, man. I, it's it's going to happen. I mean, the work is there. Um, the results are there. Being Having it done in public schools, which is the hardest. I mean, our, it's been well documented how difficult it is to go and educate in public schools and be able to deliver the tangible results year over year. Um, that's that's big props. And I think the, the word is, is already out. And so light will be shined because people want to understand how to do what you're doing. So, but before I let you get out of here, these are going to be four rapid fire questions that everyone has to answer uh, before, not before question, uh, they get up off an episode. So one, <laughs> well, so the first one is, you know, I think this really gets to, especially you talked about growing up your formative years, you had a bit of a hot temper. Um, but I think we get challenged with this a lot. I think we walk around with more stress than other people. So we have to be more adept at being able to control our temper. So, you know, there's the iconic quote from Michelle Obama, when they go low, you go high. Tell me, tell us really quickly about a time in which they went low and you really have to dig deep uh, um, to go high. Became an administrator and trying to do some things, told you about Department of Justice, uh, but being a black man, uh, there were some people that had some expectations uh, based upon some stereotypes. And when I turned out not to be some of those things, um, they started speaking down on my character, uh, making up stories, falsehoods around the school. But even even the, the, the adults in the building understood there's some falsehoods. And so what I chose to do is I was living on, uh, leaned in on my experiences coming up like I understand like historical relationships, how people have been traumatized themselves. So not necessarily blaming the comments, but trying to under, understood where the comments came from and decided to try to address their complaints about me, which were falsehoods, but from their perspective, like trying to change the system. And so even though they were going low, uh, I took that as data for me to think about, well, what needs to change in the system to assist them to feel more comfortable um, at my school site. So I went high and that ended up leading to my relationship with KQED. Mm, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And I think one, it's, it's just important for us to keep stories like that front of mind, especially as black men, because one moment of losing our temper could have a lifetime of consequences. So, um, but then also, you know, you look at the, now you have this relationship with KQED, a really great platform to get your message out far and wide. And the crazy side story, I think that I didn't, you didn't even tell me about the interview and podcast you did with KQED. NPR national Twitter account picked it up. Some friends of mine saw it, saw the last name. They're like, yo, I think that's Neff's brother. I'm driving to work and that I get a text. And so when I get to the office and I finally look at the text, I click on the link and it's a picture of you sitting in your office and it's this interview of my big brother that's on NPR's like national Twitter handle, which I thought was bizarre and awesome. So great benefits to, you know, you being able to take the high road. Absolutely. Yeah. What's up? 
Let's go. Second question. Oh, definition, definition of success. success. Well, I'm going to say it's a little different. I, 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 more time, most times people think of success as like you achieve something. For me, success is about in the moment, um, not necessarily achieving something. So I think success is the intersection of values and beliefs, goals, skills, and environment as that intersectionality is tried as you try to apply these things to relationships. So if you're able to take um, your values, beliefs, their goals, your skills in an environment that you're in, and if you can apply those things in a way that's humanizing for those individuals you're interacting with and your, and yourself, then those things are successful. And it's, it is the application, not necessarily the outcome. So for me, it's the success, the success is being able to, to move in a way where those things are operating in a way that uh, humanizes everybody. So whether you're at the job, whether you're at home, extracurricular activities, and if you're doing these things appropriately, then things will happen. Like you do end up graduating from places. You do end up um, being able to change environments. You do end up building uh, strong relationships, et cetera. But success for me is the constant application of those things. Success can't end. It's not a finite point, right? It's it's a it's a it's a it's on a continuum of interaction with people. It's the means. The, Absolutely. Um, in a word, describe your life's journey. Wavelength. Okay. Wavelength um, is defined from crest to crest. But um, there's a crest, trough, crest. So I, I think there are peaks and valleys, um, but that's part of the wavelength. And so a peak and a valley is neither good or bad, it just is. And thinking about um, there are different characteristics, um, experiences at the top of the wavelength as opposed to the bottom, uh, to my being able to reframe. I used to talk about, like, I don't fit any place. Like, I'm from the streets. I grew up in LA, um, but I didn't get involved. I didn't get involved in selling drugs and gang banging or whatever, but uh, I know about that life. Uh, I went to UC Berkeley. That was not the exposure that I had growing up in the streets of LA. And so uh, I, I know both worlds. And I used to say that I didn't fit in either. Right. But reframing, when you think about uh, crests and troughs, not, not that I don't fit in either. I have exposure to both worlds. I'm diversified. Right. Right. Um, I just didn't dabble into uh, getting crazy in the streets um, around selling drugs and becoming a gang member. Um, but I did get into uh, going to college and, and getting that education. Yep. So I feel wavelength. I dig it. I dig it. And I love the, I love the context you were able to provide. And the last question, last question is, there's a lot of uh, a lot of disadvantages, manufactured disadvantages that come with being a black man, especially over the last 500 years. But there's also a lot of uh, beautiful things, both man-made benefits and divine benefits that we, we have being black men. What uh, would you say is the single most thing you love about being a black man? Hmm. The single. Oh my God. 
Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make reference to uh, one of my former teachers at UC Berkeley, uh, Dr. Grace Massey. Um, I sat in her Black Families class, and I learned about this acronym called MEES. M-E-E-S. It's like mundane, extreme environmental stress. And it's something that um, they say that the black community is just exposed to just this constant stress and it's extreme. Right. And, it, and it's so constant that it's just mundane. It's just expected. Well, from this Mies, this mundane, extreme environmental stress, I see that as forged in fire. Right. Um, start thinking about me, where I've what I've gone through to be where I am. I have been forged in fire. I've been tried and tested and come out true. And so I think the greatest thing about um, being a black man, especially in a hostile environment that America can be, is that trial by fire. So that crest and trough, these are experiences that allow me as a leader to bring something unique and beneficial to the overall conversation in our general society, in our mainstream society. Um, and I think that is a unique thing that can't be taken away from people who are black, um, whether that's our, the music that people like around our rap, the way we dress, the way we talk, um, like you can imitate it, but that stuff is from real life experiences forged in fire. And I think that is the one thing I really love about being a black man. I've been speak on, speak on. man. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, making the time, come and share your journey, your wisdom, your game with those of us here on uh, Bootstraps. I think this is going to be uh, a valuable story and narrative for people to hear, you know, because I think oftentimes it gets put in this context of you have to be an athlete or you have to be uh, a sellout, or you have to go to jail. Like those, those are like the three archetypes. So you guess you maybe entertainer, right? So you throw like entertainer athlete into the same bucket. But those are kind of the the, the three archetypes that are that are pushed from a narrative standpoint. But there are so many uh, black men are out there there who are forging their own path and who are coming up with different ways, and not only coming up with different ways to like make it in this world, coming up with different ways to, to thrive and to lead others and to build towards a, a better present and a better tomorrow. So really appreciate you coming and sharing your story. And for folks out there who get to hear this, I think uh, they will be blessed. So, man, we have to get you. Yeah, Thank you, Nev Dog. Thank you, Nev Dog, for loving even in, uh, inviting me to speak, man. I appreciate it. 